Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. My name is Erwin Chemerinsky. I'm Dean of the Law School, and I'm here with Joan Piskubik. Joan is a visiting professor of law at the University of California, Irvine. She's editor in charge of legal affairs at Reuters on leave this year while she's at UCI, and also a contributing analyst for CNN. It's wonderful to be with you and have the chance for this conversation. We're going to be talking about the coming term of the Supreme Court. The justice will come back on Monday, September 26th for their so-called long conference, considering all of the cert petitions that have accumulated in the last three months. We can expect there'll be a number of grants of review by the Supreme Court next week. At this point, there are 28 cases on the Supreme Court's docket for the term that would begin on Monday, October 3rd. It'll be an unusual day because, again, like at the end of last term, there will be eight justices on the bench. Joan, do you have an initial thoughts about the coming term of the court? Thank you, Erwin, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. And what's especially nice is that when we finish this, I will not be flying back to Washington, D.C. I will continue for this academic term here at UCI, which I'm, I'm just loving so far. But I do think it's important to pause for a moment to consider the historic nature of the upcoming term. This will be the first one in 30 years without Justice Antonin Scalia, who died in February. It will be the first one with eight justices for a very protracted amount of time here. We do not know when we will have a ninth justice. President Obama has nominated Merrick Garland. It is unlikely that that nomination will be acted on anytime soon. So this is a court that it will be dealing with eight for many of the cases we're about to talk about. So what does that mean on the issues? Just generally, Irwin, I think we can look to evidence from last term when the justices were down to eight. Uh, They don't seem ready to take great strides in any areas of the law. They are more willing to compromise. Uh, They are looking for narrow. They are looking for creative ways to decide things without deciding anything that will be, as uh, Chief Justice Roberts even said during his confirmation, a jolt. So I think what we're looking for is more of a holding pattern while the political situation clarifies itself. Finally, just who to watch and why do we care? Uh, Justice Kennedy, California's own, is critical on this court, uh, but he soon might not be as relevant just because he will, if the court becomes more liberal, he will no longer be the justice in the middle. But I think we should watch for any partnerships that he develops with Justice Stephen Breyer, who could become more critical. I also think that we should watch for Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas to maybe pick up the mantle of Justice Scalia, who they seem to want to uh, keep in their, uh, their memories as long as possible because he was a fellow conservative and one that they both uh, highly respected. I agree with everything you said. I think there's been a real effect of only eight justices in shaping the docket for so far this term. As of June 26, the Supreme Court had granted review in only 17 cases for the coming term. Usually half the docket is set by the end of June when they go in the summer recess. They quickly took 11 cases on June 27th and 28th to bring it up to 28 cases, though even that's a bit less than usual. And there's no 
blockbuster cases likely on the docket so far. At least there's no cases on the most controversial issues like abortion, affirmative action, guns. I think that's deliberate. I think these justices are trying to stay away from the issues that are likely to produce a 4-4 split. Obviously, I agree with you. They're going to have eight justices for at least some, if not all, of this term. I think there's a real chance if Hillary Clinton is elected in November, especially if there's then a Democratic Senate to be, that Republicans could decide to confirm Merrick Garland in December. Garland will be 64 years old then. By all accounts, he's moderate. I could imagine Senate Republicans deciding they'd rather have a 64-year-old moderate than take their chances on a much younger liberal. But even then, Garland would miss the October, November, and December rule arguments. And if it's the next president, Clinton or Trump, who picks Scalia's replacement, then I can't imagine there'll be confirmation hearings until late next spring, and the court will go all of next term with just eight justices. Yes, I think, I, I, I'll tell you what I think. Um, it's hard to know. We don't even know who will be president. But I think that given where the Senate Republicans are, even if the Senate flips to Democratic for the next uh, calendar year, I think we're looking at eight justices, no action on Merrick Garland. But I would think that if Hillary Clinton becomes president, that the smart political choice might end up being Merrick Garland. So one way or another, he might end up be on the court. And one last thing I was reminded of when you were talking about the shifting uh, numbers of what kinds of cases and sheer number of cases they're taking, I think that this is a very important time for the chief. This is the strongest challenge that Chief Justice John Roberts has had professionally, probably for all of his life. He spent the first decade on this court with a majority, able to do many things he wanted to do. And that's slipping through his fingers, probably, depending, again, on the election. And in talking to some people about John Roberts recently, uh, the phrase came up, will John Roberts' life tenure turn into a life sentence of sorts if he suddenly becomes one of the first chief justices in American history not to have a majority for most of his tenure? And, of course, that, like so much, depends on the November election. The reality is that the next president is likely to have three or four seats to fill on the Supreme Court, especially if he or she serves for two terms. Since 1960, 78 years old is the average age which the justices left the bench. Justice Scalia was 79 when he passed away on February 13th. If you think about it, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 83. Anthony Kennedy is 80. Stephen Breyer is 78. And so if you replace some or all of them along with Justice Scalia, that's going to determine the composition for years to come. If it's Donald Trump, then Chief Justice Roberts is going to be the the head of a Republican majority for years, decades to come. But if it's Hillary Clinton, then you're right. John Roberts will be the first Chief Justice in a very long time to be in the ideological minority. Why don't we talk about some of the cases for next term? One of the things that's striking to me is, with only 28 cases on the docket, so many are dealing with issues of race. And one that deserves to get a lot of media attention is Pina Rodriguez versus Colorado. Yes, uh, this one tests the Sixth Amendment right to an impartial jury. It involves a man who was uh, convicted of harassing two girls in a bathroom at a racetrack facility in Colorado. And after he was convicted, it emerged that one of the jurors, who's known in the record only as H.C., said that one of the reasons he wanted to convict was because 
the defendant was a Mexican, and Mexican men take whatever they want. Now, many of our listeners will immediately think, how could a juror possibly get away with saying that? Wouldn't that undermine the, the verdict here? But the truth is, there's another competing interest here, not just the right to a fair trial, which is uh, the way this case is being appealed to the Supreme Court. It's the idea that what goes on in a jury room stays in a jury room. It's the secrecy of jury deliberations. In fact, when this case was heard by the Colorado Supreme Court, it ruled against Pena Rodriguez, Mr. Pena Rodriguez appealing, to say that uh, what's overriding is a state rule of evidence, mirroring the federal rule of evidence, that anything in the jury room stays there and it can't be used to challenge the verdict. Now, a dissenting judge on the Colorado Supreme Court played right into probably the reason the justices took it up, took up the case, when she said, there are times when deliberations would be so tainted by racial bias that that would trump, so to speak, uh, the usual presumption that in favor of the secrecy of the jury. And what's interesting here is that the Supreme Court itself in recent years has taken up this taken up this question of the competing interest between a right to a fair trial and the secrecy of jury deliberations, and said as recently as 2014 that secrecy is overriding. But in that case, Justice Sotomayor, writing for the majority, said that there might be a time when a case of juror bias is so extreme that almost by definition, the jury trial right has been abridged. And that's what the defendant is pointing to here and saying this is a case where uh, the usual policies of juror finality and juror privacy are overcome by juror bias. It'll be interesting to see how the court weighs those two competing considerations. If this isn't the case that meets what Justice Sotomayor was talking about, hard to know what would be the situation. This statement was so explicit and so racist. Yes, and there was an additional one. This man said, first of all, he says, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And his alibi witness said he was with him. He was not even at the... Uh, the racetrack facility, and this juror in question, uh, H.C., not only disparaged the defendant's ethnicity, but when he was referring to the alibi witness, he said, well, I understand he's an illegal alien, so we shouldn't trust him either. So it was compounded not just against the defendant, but against one of his key witnesses. There are another couple of cases about race that I talk about. I should disclose I'm co-counsel in these cases in Vincent's beginning. They're Bank of America versus City of Miami and Wells Fargo versus City of Miami. They're going to actually both be argued on a consolidated basis on Election Day. What they involve is a claim that these banks were intentionally directing very undesirable mortgages with a high likelihood of foreclosure to predominantly minority low-income communities. We've long heard of banks engaging in redlining as a practice where they would not be willing to give mortgages to predominantly minority low-income communities. This is, in essence, reverse redlining. And the claim is that Bank of America, that Wells Fargo, targeted particularly individuals of color, low-income individuals, with mortgages, knowing there was a very high likelihood there'd be a foreclosure. There was a foreclosure, and then the properties, to a large extent, left vacant. The city of Miami brings a lawsuit saying that it's aggrieved and can sue under the Fair Housing Act. 
It says it has to absorb many costs by virtue of what the banks were doing. The federal district court in Florida dismissed the case for lack of standing, saying that Miami doesn't have standing to be able to sue as an aggrieved party under the Fair Housing Act. But the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit reversed. The 11th Circuit said that Miami has alleged a sufficient injury to meet the requirements for standing both under the Fair Housing Act and also with regard to Article Three of the Constitution. So it's a question about standing. It's in a very important context. A number of other cities, including Los Angeles, have filed identical suits against banks for this reverse redlining practice. To some extent, it goes back to a Supreme Court case from late June 2015, the Texas Department of Housing Affairs versus Inclusive Community, where the Supreme Court five to four said that you can bring a claim under the Fair Housing Act based on a discriminatory impact, a disparate effect. And that's what Miami is saying here, that the banks were engaged in a practice with a discriminatory effect, indeed even a discriminatory intent. This is a very difficult area for this court that tends to divide it. And I'm glad you referred to the 2015 Fair Housing Act case because that was a case that grew out of the Supreme Court's effort to really take on the breadth of this landmark civil rights law. Three times the justices had agreed to take up this issue, and it seemed very much driven by the conservative justices who thought that the Fair Housing Act was being too broadly construed by lower courts to allow claims to be brought under, under the law. But in the end, Justice Kennedy, uh, who's become much more um, crucial as a, a vote on racial issues, just as he's been on many issues, uh, went and joined with the liberals to allow the act to be broadly interpreted and it'll be interesting to see what happens here. Now, again, it's a, quite different when we're dealing with just eight justices rather than the, uh, the nine. But even if it splits, if the court divides 4-4 in this case, it would let stand uh, or affirm, affirm by an equally divided vote, the ruling that you just referred to from the 11th Circuit. Yes, and of course, since Justice Kennedy's opinion in the Texas case was joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyerson, and Kagan, there'd be hope that there'd be five votes to affirm, thinking that the three dissenters who are still on the court almost surely will reverse the 11th Circuit. But I can tell you, as one of the lawyers in the case, we're very aware all we need is a 4-4 in order for it to go forward. Right. And what you're hoping is that the Just Ken Justice Kennedy continues his pattern of moving to the left on race. Absolutely. And of course, Fisher versus University of Texas from June 23rd being the most recent example where for the first time in his career on the court, he voted to uphold an affirmative action program. Right. It's so interesting that even though we keep talking about a sort of a holding pattern for eight, we're seeing the justices moving in different ways, even with their reduced numbers. Another case involving race, also a criminal case, is Buck v. Davis, do you want to talk about that a bit? I do. And uh, this is a case that will be heard the very first week that the justices are in on Wednesday, October 5th. Uh, Dwayne Buck, uh, an African-American, was convicted of murder in 1996. And one of his defense experts, this was somebody who was uh, ostensibly on his side, uh, a psychologist said that uh, Buck was more likely to be dangerous in the future because he is a black man. And uh, in Texas, future dangerousness is a prerequisite for the death sentence. So this really mattered. Uh, four years after uh, uh, Mr. Buck was sentenced to death, Texas did acknowledge that um, race as a dangerousness 
in testimony was unconstitutional, but he was far enough along in his appeals that one of the key issues here is it, can he get through the can he get through the gate to even uh, appeal his sentence at this point? And this is another one of these cases, just like the first one I talked about, where the court is being asked to set aside the usual rules. In that one, it was the usual jury privacy rules. In this one, it's the usual rules against when you can appeal your case. And uh, in this one, uh, Mr. Buck is saying that this the the threat to the administration of justice here is exceptional given what was done below. Uh, and Texas is constantly giving the Supreme Court challenges based on its procedures in state. Uh, they've had many problems there, and they're always trying to revise them. And the question is, how much uh, do prior defendants are they? How much are prior defendants able to take advantage of this? Now, a version of this case was before the justices back in 2011. They did not take Mr. Buck's, Dwayne Buck's case at that point, uh, but some of the conservative justices did note that they were troubled by the psychologist's testimony, and even Justice Alito. I believe, deemed it bizarre. Um, so Texas officials say that uh, Dwayne Buck should be denied based on procedural grounds uh, because he's come late to the game in, in terms of his appeal. But I think there are enough signs from the court on this one that he might have a good chance to actually be able to bring his case at this time. Buck's claim is for ineffective assistance of counsel. He says, my lawyer was ineffective by putting on an expert that says that I'm more likely to be dangerous because of my race. That almost seems like an obvious prima facie case of malfeasance by the defense lawyer. The technical legal issue in this case is whether a certificate of appealability should have been granted. And just to explain that a bit, what's different with regard to habeas corpus than I think any other area is that in any other area in federal court, if you lose, you can appeal. But in 1996 federal statute, the Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty said you can only appeal a denial of a writ of habeas corpus if you get what's called a certificate of appealability. And the district court can grant you the certificate of appealability. The Court of Appeals can grant you the certificate of appealability. But somebody has to grant you the certificate of appealability. Here, Buck was denied the certificate of appealability. So the precise issue before the court is, should the certificate of appealability have been granted? And it's in the context of what seems really egregious, ineffective as a counsel, and in the race theory as well. That's right. So it will really test the justices who tend to be more formalistic, who tend to have, feel, okay, there's a rule here. The reason Congress passed the requirement for a certificate of appealability was to have finality in, in death sentences. Will this overcome that usual procedural hurdle. That's exactly the issue. I was going to mention a couple of other cases that deal with race in a different context, voting. And the Supreme Court has before it now one case from Virginia, Bethune Hill versus Virginia State Board of Elections, and another from North Carolina, McCrory versus Harris, both involved whether race was impermissibly used in drawing election districts. The Virginia case involves with the Virginia legislature. The North Carolina case involves congressional districts. The Supreme Court in 1993 in Shaw v. Reno said that it violates equal protection of the Constitution for the government to use race in drawing election districts unless it meets what's called strict scrutiny. It has to have a compelling reason and no other way to achieve the goal. In 1995, in a case called Miller v. Johnson, the Supreme Court said, 
if race is used as the predominant factor in drawing election districts, that then violates equal protection unless strict scrutiny is met. In a subsequent case, Easley versus Cromartie, the Supreme Court says it's okay for the government to use race in drawing districts if they're doing so to predict likely votes. So it's okay to look to the fact that African Americans vote disproportionately as Democrats in drawing election districts. But it's not okay to use race if the goal is to make it easier to elect minority representatives, like creating a majority-minority district. So the question is, how is it decided whether race is the predominant factor in drawing districts? How is it determined whether race was used in order to assess likely voting patterns, or was race used for impermissible purposes trying to elect minority representatives? What I find interesting about these two cases is that with regard to the Virginia case, a three-judge federal district court votes two to one to uphold the Virginia system. A key characteristic was that there's 12 majority black districts with regard to this house of the Virginia legislature. They wanted to make sure there was at least 55% African-American population in them. The three-judge court said for 11 of them, race wasn't the predominant factor. It was things like political party affiliation. And for the one where it was the factor, they said, well, this is to meet the requirements of the Voting Rights Act. And they uphold this. By contrast, in North Carolina, the court strikes this down, and the North Carolina court says that race was used as the predominant factor in drawing these two congressional districts, to create two majority black congressional districts, and therefore it violates equal protection. So the court has one case was upheld, one was struck down from two states that border one another, Virginia and North Carolina. And in this context, it's also worth remembering cases like Shaw versus Reno and Miller versus Johnson and so many others were 5-4 with Justice Scalia in the majority. Maybe we should shift from talking about race cases to talking about some of the others that are on the docket. Um, there's a very important church-state case on the docket, the Trinity Lutheran case versus Pauli. Yes, and like race cases, this ends up dividing the justices typically 5-4, uh, maybe 4-4 four, four this time around. Uh, this is a very thorny religious dispute that was accepted just before Justice Scalia died, and it bears his mark. I would bet that he, in fact, voted to accept this petition. Uh, in fact, the petition that comes from these challengers had uh, quoted Justice Scalia. Uh, here are the facts. Uh, it involves a church that runs a, a little preschool, and it applied for a grant under a Missouri law uh, that gives money for playground resurfacing using scrap tire material. Uh, the program is the Missouri Scrap Tire Grant Program, and it's funded through fees collected on new tires sold. Uh, it seems innocuous and enough, but what's important here is the broader principle of when government money can be used for religious purposes. And in 2004, for example, uh, in a case called Locke v. Davey, uh, one that was written, in fact, by conservative Chief Justice William Rehnquist, the Supreme Court upheld a Washington state provision that barred public scholarship aid to college students pursuing degrees in theology. Uh, now, that was a 72 opinion, and it, was, it basically re reaffirms the longstanding principle that state <clears throat> grant money or state uh, taxpayer money cannot be, be direct, 
directed to religious principles. But in that case, the two dissenters were Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, and the um, challengers here invoke them uh, and invoke something that Justice Scalia said that goes right to the heart of this case. And what he said was that when a state makes a public benefit generally available, that benefit becomes part of the baseline against which any burden on religion should be measured. And when the state withholds that benefit, in this case, uh, withholding the scrap tire grant program, it actually violates the free exercise of religion the same way it would if it imposed a tax. Now, I think this is a really hard uh, case for the justices, and I think it would have been very hard for a majority to rule in favor of the church here, the Trinity Lutheran Church that wants this grant money. But now without Justice Scalia, I think it's going, it's, it's a tougher one. And what's interesting here is that the question is whether um, the exclusion of churches from an, what the challengers say is an otherwise neutral secular aid program violates free exercise. Um, when the state has no valid establishment clause concern. Now, this is one where the challengers say that, but what Missouri comes back and says is that actually our own state constitution prohibits it. Uh, we don't want to give uh, money to fund um, religious school programs. So right in this program, our Missouri constitution is forbidding it. And it's also saying, of course, that uh, there are broader federal constitution uh, concerns. Interestingly, the justices took this case, but they have not scheduled it. And uh, it would normally be in line to be scheduled. And I'm just wondering if the justices think, do we really want this case? Uh, uh, and should we wait until there's a ninth justice? Or how should we handle it? Because as I said, it's a very thorny issue. Uh, church state cases come to, tend to come down 5-4. Again, if they end up hearing it with just the the four justices and it's uh, with the eight justices and it splits four four, the lower court ruling against Trinity Lutheran Church would stand. Justice Kennedy has so consistently been with the conservatives in separation of church state issues. So he would be predicted to be with Roberts, Thomas, and Alito. In Ginsburg, Breyerson, and Kagan would predict to be on the other side. I wondered the same thing you did, since cert was granted early in terms of among the cases that are being heard this term. The briefing is done. Are they deliberately trying to put it off for oral argument with the hope that there'd be a ninth justice? Or am I reading too much into the tea leaves? It's also interesting. Usually establishment clause cases about government aid involve whether the government giving certain aid to religious schools violates the Constitution. This is the opposite, is the government refusing to give aid to religious schools a violation of their free exercise of religion. Locke v. Davey was at the college level. This obviously is the elementary school level. Does that make any difference? Well, and it is, you know, we're talking playgrounds. <laughs> it, it comes with some sympathetic facts, but even with sympathetic facts, they have to think of the broader principle, and this might be one where there's a little bit of buyer's remorse, in fact, of granting it. Let me mention one other case where cert's been granted. Then I want to ask you about one where it's certainly going to be before the court, though we don't know if they're going to take it. The one that I wanted to mention was Jennings versus Rodriguez. This involves the question, if somebody is being held as an undocumented immigrant waiting deportation, they're going to be held for more than six months, do they have to be given a bail hearing? 
Does the government, in order to keep them locked up pending deportation, have to be able to show that they're a flight risk or a risk to society? The Ninth Circuit said yes here, that they do have to be given a bail hearing. The government has to make a demonstration. The United States is vehemently disagreeing and claiming that its powers, especially in the context of the war on terror, should give them the ability to detain these individuals without a bail hearing and without a showing of flight risk or risk of dangerousness. And so it's a case that I think will also get a lot of media attention. I wanted to ask you about a case that hasn't been granted though it's certainly gotten a good deal of media attention. This is the Gloucester County case. It involves a transgender student, someone who was born a girl, has transitioned to being a boy, and wants to be able to use the school facilities, bathroom, locker facilities for boys. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit ruled in this student's favor. And maybe take it from there in terms of then what's going on in the Supreme Court. That's right. Uh the, uh, the young student, uh, Gavin Grimm, uh, just wanted to use the boys' bathroom at the high school. And it's um, the Supreme Court in August blocked the effect of this Fourth Circuit ruling you're referring to. You know, it was right before school was going to start. And the court said, essentially, you know, we're going to block what happened below, and now we're going to decide whether we want to take up the appeal from the school district on the merits. Once the Supreme Court blocks a lower court ruling, the presumption usually is that it will hear the appeal. I don't know if that will happen here. Obviously, throughout the country right now, there are a lot of controversies over uh, school district policies and Obama administration guidance that if extends federal protections uh, against sex discrimination to transgender people. In fact, this is what the Fourth Circuit had relied on in great measure in this case. And we know that there's a separate lawsuit percolating out there on behalf of Texas and other uh, conservative-leaning states challenging the Obama administration um, guidance on transgender student policies. In this case, so the reason there's a little bit of a question mark about whether the Supreme Court really wants to take this up now is that when Justice Stephen Breyer voted, essentially giving a fifth vote to grant the stay with the, um, with the four conservatives here, he described his vote as a courtesy to the four conservatives to at least put it on put it on the calendar to decide whether they should decide, uh, which is exactly what's going to happen uh, in their conferences now when they decide the, the, full, the full range of their cases for the year. So I think this is a really important question. I think this is a very difficult one to predict, however. Well, there's so many fascinating aspects to it. Justice Kennedy has been the leader of the court with regard to gay and lesbian rights. Every Supreme Court case in history advancing rights for gays and lesbians, the majority opinion was written by Anthony Kennedy. And yet here, when it involves a transgender student, Justice Kennedy votes with Roberts, Thomas, and Alito, who always dissent in the gay rights cases. It takes four votes to grant a case in the Supreme Court. Do we read from what happened in August that there are four votes to grant? But even if those four justices want to overturn the Fourth Circuit, Unless they think they have a chance of a fifth vote, would they want to take the case? 4-4 four, four means the Fourth Circuit decision stands. And the legal issue, in part, is, is discriminating as the transgender student 
sex discrimination in Title IX, but it's also about how much deference is given to an agency in interpreting a statute, a much less controversial issue. So all of this is mixed together. It'll be interesting to see whether the court ends up taking the case. That's right. Even though the issue might not be as emotional, the topic is, and it comes at that intersection of, of gay and lesbian rights, but here, rather than having to do with sexual orientation, where we know Justice Kennedy has staked out ground, this is sexual identity, which is new terrain for them. We'll see, and hopefully we can do this again, especially after the court grants additional cases in the September conference into the fall. Maybe we can then talk about some of the other grants in the coming term. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Irwin, and thanks to the university. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.